Welcome to the Acamedia podcast presented by... Yeah, that's good. You totally, you stuck I caught myself. I hitched and caught. Uh, The Journal of Cinema and, seen this one for Journal 4, Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Wow. You know, like, um, there's a, I can't remember what movie it is, has somebody who is trying to, um, oh, no, it's 30 Rock. It's Jack Donaghy who uh, gets really self-conscious about walking, and all of a sudden he can't walk, and he's trying to figure (laughs) out, like, where his arms go. Right. It's kind of like that. Like, where do the words go? All right. At least it's hopefully as funny and entertaining as 30 Rock once was. Absolutely. Uh, This is, in fact, Acamedia, which is the official podcast of uh, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies and the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Maybe we should just let you do the opening from here on out. Yeah, it's it's way more fun when you do it. Okay, all right. Plus, plus you are so completely on top of things. <laughs> it's really nice to have something where you where you trip up a little bit. It makes <laughs> you know makes the rest of us feel you know a little a, a little bit more okay. All right. Well, we are back. We also had uh, not the summer off so much from the podcast, but we just had someone step in and, and pinch hit for us the pandemic TV series, which I also participated in. So yeah, which you were a part of and you helped make happen and did a lot of the back end and front end work on. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, it was a really great experience. Highly recommended. If you haven't heard it, that is accessible on our website. And here we go, aka-media.org. See, I got that yeah. one down. I, see, I've got it like yeah. almost like it's a lyric. So that one rolls off the tongue. I got to turn. Maybe you just need to put this all to, to song. I do. I need to make a song out of it. Hopefully not a rap. I don't know that I could pull that off, but um, make a little song out of it. That might get embarrassing. Yeah. So... On our website, you can listen to the Pandemic TV series, six episodes plus an introduction and a closer, and uh, really fascinating conversations about the state of television, watching television, and teaching television over the summer. And we'll see how things go into the fall, which we are in it. We are oh, we man. are deep in yeah. it now. Oh, I love these lovely fall days. Back to college <laughs> wearing the old Letterman sweater and... Uh, <laughs> Roasting chestnuts and going to the cookouts. Yeah, I think many of you know because we made national news. Notre Dame has started our semester early uh, in person. We certainly have some online classes happening, but the university wants us here in person, so we're in person. Here we are. It's happening. Uh, I know there's a lot that we want to cover in the the big segment here, and I'm going to let all of those folks do all the complaining, but who golly. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't listened to this segment after uh, or before being through this particular experience. And especially we've got, you know, again, we won't say too much because we want to get to the to the heart of the episode. But we've got some brewing dissatisfaction with how some of the things have played out uh, here at Notre Dame. And especially the the feeling like maybe the people who should be listening to us aren't listening to us and frustration with figuring out how to make them listen to us. So that's all going on while we're also doing all the regular stuff of teaching our classes with masks and all of that. It's interesting how this kind of crisis reveals structures. Mm. You know, I mean, it shows all the fault lines. And it, and obviously, this is the great uh, meta lesson of 2020, right? Is that everything that is happening is revealing structural problems that are, in many cases, decades or centuries old. But um, there it is. 
And it's tough to figure out how to approach those too. As you say, they've been yeah. entrenched and other people have tried. And so what, what do we do? And then this is in some ways the same old thing, in some ways an entirely new version of it. And so how do you, how do you approach it? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, maybe this is the perfect expression of the, the kind of new neoliberal subject, right? For a while, we were all epidemiologists mm. and had to um, sort of freelance our way through assessing how, how the disease is going. And at least my summer has been um, all of a sudden becoming a kind of logistics engineer, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, trying to uh, remap our classes and find technology and stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, there are actually people who are professionals at this, who work for places like, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers and stuff. But you know what? <laughs> we're just going to do it. And now I think we're into the stage where we're all sociologists. Right. <laughs> we're all pressed into service in ways we never yeah. imagined we would be before. Yep, so it goes. Yeah, well, we're going to carry on, and Acomedia will carry on. And I think that the things we're starting to talk about here are really brought into profound relief by the conversation you're about to hear, and we'll also give you some ideas on your own campuses for some organizing you might be able to do. So let's just briefly set up what you're getting here. Um, a group of would-be participants on an SCMS roundtable on workplace organizing and film and media studies, uh, of course, with SCMS canceled, couldn't do their roundtable. They decided they still wanted to get their ideas out there, and now more than ever, given that we now have a pandemic on top of the challenges of labor organizing in academia. So we offer the Acomedia platform to them, and they've produced an excellent conversation for us to listen to. So just to give you an idea of what you're getting here, like any SCMS roundtable, it's going to start with individual presentations and then becomes a group conversation. Uh, the participants are introduced in the segment, but just for your preliminary information, you'll be hearing from roundtable host Jamie Rogers, who is a visiting assistant professor at Clemson. And then the participants are Chris Robey, professor of film and media studies at Florida Atlantic University, Yulia Gillich, a film and digital media PhD candidate at UC Santa Cruz, Rebecca Gordon, who is hopefully starting soon in an MA program in film preservation at Ryerson University in Toronto, if Canada starts letting some Americans in. And Ben Stork was most recently at Seattle University, but you will hear more about his labor status in the segment. So we're going to just let this unfold from start to finish, and we'll return afterward with a few final thoughts. All right, here we go. Welcome to Out of the Ashes and Into Academia, Workplace Organizing by Film and Media Studies faculty. This is a roundtable that was meant for SCMS 2020, but it's found its new home here at Acomedia. So this roundtable is about movement creation and higher education, an industry among many that since the 1970s has suffered under neoliberal privatization tactics, tactics that in higher education equal administrative bloat and decreased support for research and teaching. Our roundtable focuses on ways in which faculty and graduate students have been collectively organizing within and outside of unions to demands for better pay, improved workplace conditions, and faculty governance. It's really about movement creation, organizing tactics toward action, and the inevitable problems that come with both something that is all the more pertinent today, given the unprecedented crisis being brought about by COVID-19. Our presenters today represent a variety of geographic and institutional spaces, from the West Coast to the East Coast, from public to private, from union-friendly spaces to hostile right-to-work states, and to all that might come in between. We also represent different ranks and positions, from lecturers to visiting positions to full professor to graduate students. And something we want to think about is solidarity across these various positions and perspectives. 
So in what is to come, Chris Robey, Yulia Gillich, Rebecca Gordon, and Ben Stork discuss more problematic relations that they faced in organizing through traditional unions. Yulia is a film and digital media PhD candidate at UCSC, an international student, and one of the organizers of the cost of living adjustment, the COLA campaigns taking place at the University of California campuses. Rebecca is a member of the SCMS Board of Directors, and she's the board liaison to SMS's new precarious labor organization. This fall, she's going to begin an MA program, Film Preservation and Collection Management at Ryerson University, Toronto, if the border ever opens, and she hopes to be over there uh, like a shot. Ben is an interdisciplinary scholar of left politics, Marxist theory, and nonfiction images. He worked as an instructor in Seattle University's Film Studies program from 2014 to 2020, when he was laid off due to enrollment declines and definitely not due to his labor organizing and his criticizing of the university. Chris Robey is a professor of film media studies at Florida Atlantic University and has been a union organizer ever since being hired. He writes about community media and how social movements employ multiple forms of media in their organizing campaigns. And today he's going to discuss how the National Education Association provided support for a sustained membership drive in the fall of 2018 for Florida's faculty union, the United Faculty of Florida. And my name is Jamie Ann Rogers. I'm a visiting assistant professor in the Department of English at Clemson University and a former union and grad student organizer at the University of California, Irvine. And I'll be moderating the discussion today. So we're gonna start with some introductions from each of the panelists to their own experiences with organizing, and we'll finish up with questions and conversations about their experiences. So Ben, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Yulia, Becky, and Chris. I'm honored to be part of this conversation. What I wanna do is give a quick timeline of the Seattle University non-tenure track union drive, uh, highlighting the role of the legal process in our fight with the institution and ultimately um, what uh, the takeaway is in terms of how to build union power on college and university campuses. So in the spring of 2013, the Seattle University faculty or non-tenure track faculty organizing committee decides to affiliate with the Service Employees International Union Local 925 here in Seattle. And they begin an organizing drive devoted to card signing and leading to an eventual vote, which occurs in the spring of 2014. The vote is held and the votes are then submitted to the regional NLRB, uh, that, that is the Regional National Labor Labor Relations Board for certification. At that point, Seattle University appeals the vote um, and prevents the votes from being counted. So I joined the faculty actually as a part-time lecturer in the film studies program in the fall of 2014, and I start participating with the union drive in the winter of 2014. At that time, the organizing committee is 10 strong with good connections in the student activist organizations on campus, and there are around five paid organizers working the campaign as well. The strategy is one of direct action to put pressure on the institution to withdraw its appeal and to have the votes counted. So in February of 2015, as uh, February 25th, Seattle University participates in the National Adjunct Walkout Day March with high turnout from faculty of all ranks and strong student support. 
this is, I think, a fairly successful event. And though there is no actual causal relation, uh, a few days later, the regional NLRB comes back rejecting Seattle University's appeal. At this point, though, Seattle University is then able to file another appeal of this decision, uh, this time kicking it up to the federal office of the National Labor Relations Board. The union and the organizing committee continue with their strategy of putting pressure on the university through direct action. On April 15th, 2015, as part of the National Fight for 15 Day of Action, 11 NTT faculty and one tenure-track faculty, along with a cadre of students and a group of Macy workers, stage a sit-down protest in a major intersection on Capitol Hill in Seattle. We're all arrested in the intersection. Uh, This generates actually really good publicity, at least in the region, drawing attention to the issue and the hypocrisy of a Jesuit institution that is fighting its faculty despite both general Catholic support of labor rights, but also in particular the Jesuits. Despite its success, Seattle U obviously does not withdraw its appeal and continues to fight in the court system. So with this appeal in the works, this drags out over the summer of 2015 until August, at which point the NLRB returns another decision, again rejecting CLU's appeal. However, CLU is able to file yet another appeal. This appeal actually goes on much longer. Uh, That appeal drags on for almost an entire year. The organizing committee and union continue the strategy of direct action on campus. However, over that time, the organizing committee uh, has lost a number of members via attrition. As we all know, attrition is something that any non-tenure track or contingent faculty union drive is going to face because simply they don't need to fire us. They can just not reappoint people. And indeed, that is what happened. People were non-reappointed. At the same time, of course, people have to continue to look for other jobs as well. And a number of the organizing committee moved on to jobs either at other institutions or outside of the academy entirely. For instance, a number of the organizing committee actually moved into organizing jobs with the SEIU. The upshot of this is that Over the course of this year, our direct actions get smaller and smaller. We still have strong support among the students. We have nominal support among the faculty. However, participation in the drive has dropped off precipitously. This is more or less where things stand going into the summer of 2016. Really quickly, I'll just note that students held a successful occupation of a dean's office for a month in the spring of 2016, leading to the resignation of the dean over racially insensitive remarks. I bring that up uh, simply to note that student activism on campus was strong, and we did try to make common cause with those students, I think successfully, but it also shows some of the limits of student support, which is not a critique of student support, but a structural issue, which is that most of the organizers that we worked with uh, who held that occupation ultimately graduated, <laughs> moved on, right, as they should. So this is where things stood going into the summer of 2016. In late July or early August of 2016, the university and the union testify in front of the regional NLRB around the religious function of faculty. 
myself and a number of others testify, mostly focused on the question of whether our teaching is an essential component of carrying out the university's religious mission, uh, which it is not. That's what I testified to. And mostly this focused on a single phrase in the university mission statement, education for the whole person. I believe that's what it is, which the university argues aligns with Jesuit pedagogy and the doctrine of cura personalis, or the whole person. Regardless, following about a month later, September, September 12th, the NLRB once again rejects this final appeal and orders the votes counted, and so we move forward with the vote count. The union wins, 73-4, 63 against. I just want to quickly note that that vote count is narrower than it should be because the union ultimately accepted challenges to a number of ballots, I think around 10 ballots, mostly from the philosophy department. We did this because we had already assured mathematical victory, and at that point, adjudicating each of those challenges would have dragged the process out even longer. I'm quite ambivalent about this decision because obviously you know, we, we violated a certain democratic principle, which is we disenfranchised those people. Their votes just weren't counted, right? And then we acquiesced to that, which is unfortunate. But on the other hand, the idea of continuing was <laughs> really daunting uh, at, at that point. Now, there, there is a second as aspect of that, which is that this also allowed the university to claim that the vote was much closer than it in fact was. We would have won by 20 votes rather than 10 votes. And the university immediately started trumpeting this as a narrow victory to undermine union support, right? Or to suggest that we didn't have a lot of support among the faculty or enough, or, you know, we barely squeaked by. Less than a month later, President Father Steven Sundberg announces in a video to the entire campus and thus the entire world that Seattle University is going to refuse to bargain with the union despite our recognition by the NLRB and that they are willing to take their First Amendment argument into the federal court system. In response, the Union and Organizing Committee file an unfair labor practices charge, initiating what would eventually be a suit. Now, in November of 2016, as we all know, Donald Trump wins the presidency, and to some extent, labor enters a retreat. Uh, SEIU begins to withdraw some of its resources and reorganize itself in response to what they assume rightly will be a shift at the NLRB level to a even more uh, employer-friendly NLRB, as well as the likelihood that Trump will have federal judge appointments, as he in fact did, all the way up to the Supreme Court. So in light of this, the organizing committee and the union begin discussing what to do next and ultimately come to the decision that we should declaim our affiliation with the SEIU, withdraw our certification, and essentially fold the union. We did this for one reason primarily, and that is that were we to lose our legal fight, it would set a precedent that would affect every religiously affiliated university, and that given the situation and the changing legal terrain with the Trump election, our chances were not great. Again, despite having won every appeal, right, or won every legal argument. So that's where the union drive ends, and at this point I'll just be quick with a takeaway, and that is quite simply, the legal system is no protection for unionization. And in fact, what we saw at Seattle University is that institutions are willing to take advantage of the legal system in order to drag out the unionization process. Indeed, I came to think that the university didn't have a whole lot of hope of winning most of their arguments. 
But the strategy wasn't just about winning, but was about sapping power from the drive. And therefore, all the attrition we went through, all the loss of energy, amounted to a loss of ability to put pressure on the institution to, to interact with us, to bargain with us, and instead funneled all of this time and energy into a legal fight that the university always had an advantage on, right? Just look at the number of appeals that they were given despite losing consistently. So to me, the takeaway, and I think I hope this is something that gets picked up in the conversation, I think it will, is, is that ultimately when we think about unionization, and this is nothing new, it has to be about rank and file participation. If you don't have a strong and active rank and file, the legal system is a thin protection at best, if not a disadvantage. And channeling energy into that rather than rank and file organizing, I think, is, is ultimately not going to get us where we need to go. And so I'm gonna, I'll leave it at that um, and just say that you can win in court consistently and still lose on the ground if you don't have strong rank and file participation throughout, and the legal system can be a sap to that. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Ben, for that background. Um, Yulia, do you want to give us some background on what's been going on in the UC systems? Sure. So I'm at UC Santa Cruz, and I'm a graduate student. And we have been organizing and fighting for a cost of living adjustment, or COLA, for over a year now. In December 2019, graduate student workers at UC Santa Cruz went on a wildcat strike for COLA. So I'll talk about the kind of organizing that went into it prior, during, and after the strike. So a little background, graduate student workers at all UC campuses, which are 10 of them have graduate students. So across the state, all of us receive the same wages. It's about $2,400 a month which after taxes amounts to like $19,000 a year because we're only paid for nine months. But also knowing on one side, like clearly in Santa Cruz, which is one of the most expensive cities to live in in the country, this wage is insufficient. But also we know that hundreds of UC administrators make over half a million dollars. And the new UC president who was appointed the other day, Dr. Drake, is salaried nearly a million dollars a year. So we were asking for a monthly payment for this COLA to just account for the exorbitant cost of living and cost of rent for all graduate students so we can survive and we can live where we work. So the reason we organized for a COLA on campus is because in 2018, UAW Local 2865 that represents uh, student workers across all of the UCs settled for a contract that only guaranteed a 3% wage increase. So Santa Cruz membership overwhelmingly voted against the contract and the contract was passed regardless. So not only did it produce a lot of tensions between Santa Cruz members and the statewide union leadership, but also it sort of made it clear to us that maybe the situation in Santa Cruz is particularly dire and maybe organizers in Santa Cruz should focus on a campus-specific campaign. So we started organizing for COLA and a group of organizers who were active in the union also took up strategic roles in the graduate student government, basically in order to be able to access resources. 
we had a clear understanding that student government was a means to an end, that any collaboration with the university administration was not a part of the strategy, but we had you know, some sort of a budget that we had access to. We had access to emailing graduate students, which we didn't as a union. Yeah, and so um, after a series of direct actions, basically graduate student workers in early December called for a strike. They, in an email chain, just demanded that we withhold our labor to win a COLA. Despite the fact that we have a no strike clause in our uh, collective bargaining agreement, in our contract. So while union organizers and officers on our campus initiated the call of demand, the call to strike was made by rank and file graduate workers. So we knew that if we withhold our labor and go on strike, the union cannot, well, or will not support us because we are breaking the contract. We are going outside of the legal framework that the collective bargaining agreement allows. Despite that, December 9th last year, we went on a grading strike, meaning we would do all of the work that graduate student workers do, but we will leave the hours work of submitting the grades. So we taught the classes, we graded papers, we just didn't enter those grades in the registrar. Also, I want to mention on day one of the strike, a semi-autonomous group that's called COLA for All, where that was called COLA for All, led primarily by students of color, announced themselves. And through coalition building and direct action, COLA for All expanded the COLA struggle and sort of began the conversation and began acting on behalf of all workers, staff, and undergraduate students, and thought, what would COLA for All look like? Okay, so I'm going to jump ahead in the timeline and basically towards the end of January, after a very long silence uh, on the part of the administration, we received something that approached an offer from the administration. Um, they announced that eligible graduate students would receive a $2,500 a year needs-based housing fellowship. There is a sunset provision that the fellowship would only last until more housing is built. So in our understanding, needs-based means it's not all graduate students. And until more housing is built also means that it's not, it's not enforceable. It's not in our contract. And we, we didn't trust that this housing fellowship is actually going to resolve the issues that we have with housing insecurity. But uh, in the same email, in an amazing sort of feat of writing, the chancellor managed in the same paragraph to both commend UCSC's proud history of activism and also threaten discipline against all strikers, both in their capacity as workers, but also in their role as students for allegedly deleting grades. And we incensed by this inadequate offer, but also a threat of discipline, we voted to escalate to a full open-ended teaching strike with a hard picket line at the base of campus. So at the end of fall quarter, we withheld grades. In the beginning of the winter quarter, we went on a wildcat teaching strike. So we maintained a picket at the base of campus for a month, for over four weeks. We regularly blocked off the campus entrance, which is possible to do in Santa Cruz because we only have two vehicular entrances to campus. 
we held our ground against the police. Every day we voted whether or not we'd come back the next day. We had, we provided our own food. We had a medical tent. It was kind of this amazing space that we created at the base of campus. Um, one thing that I want to mention specifically is that police was brought in to break the strike from all over the state, costing an estimate of $300,000 a day. And also through FOIA requests, we obtained documents proving that military-grade technology was used to surveil us. 18 people, grads and undergraduate students, were brutally arrested at the picket. Many more were, were harassed, were beat up, were policed and surveilled otherwise. And yet hundreds of students and faculty, staff and Santa Cruz community members joined the picket line every day. Uh, another group of students who organized in solidarity with Cola for All called People's Coalition played a particularly important role in planning and participating in direct actions. And I also wanna mention the Black Student Union and the Undocu Collective who organized long before Cola and who demanded ICE and cops of campus long before the current uprising. And that we as graduate students finally joined them in this essential demand. And the unofficial slogan of the COLA campaign has always been cops of campus calling my bank account, but the demand to get cops of campus was only articulated after George Floyd's murder. Back to the strike. So around early March, grads on other UC campuses, nearly all disconnected from the union, began to really grow their own COLA campaigns. Grads in Santa Barbara, Davis, San Diego, and Berkeley all voted to go on either wildcat grading or teaching strike through February and March. And it really looked like we built so much power and the COLA campaign is kind of on the verge of something. And then the COVID-19 outbreak really decimated our organizing. The picket line ended as there were no in-person campus operations to disrupt. UCSC Wildcats got fired and disciplined as students with one person, an or a qualiferal organizer of color, specifically targeted and suspended for two years. So all this really affected the morale and the organizing that now had to be done digitally. And other campuses feared facing discipline in the pandemic and basically ended up submitting grades. And so did we. There was hope when the union, uh, UAW2865, filed two unfair labor practice charges against the university. And we pivoted our organizing towards building for a protected union-backed ULP strike. But despite months of organizing towards that, the union bargaining team voted against having a strike authorization vote. So now instead of building power and withholding labor, we are relying on a labor procedure, which to me is concerning. We signed a settlement agreement with the UC. We are about to enter PERB, which is Public Employee Relations Board hearing, which will decide what's gonna happen to the remaining 43 graduate students who are still fired. What's gonna happen with students who are facing student discipline. So that's where we're at. Now, you know, with ICE saying that international students must leave the country if they're not taking in-person classes and us still not being able to afford rent, in my mind, there's a lot of organizing to be done. And 
I guess we continue organizing with groups that have been organizing alongside us. We need to get cops and ICE off campus. We need Black Student Union and the Undocu Collective demands met. We need the administration to rescind discipline and rehire strikers. We need no layoffs of all workers and all lecturers. And we need a COLA. So yeah, I guess the fight continues and we're gonna have to do it during COVID. Oh, thank you, Ilya, for that. That's fascinating what's been going on out there and watching it from afar has been interesting. So thank you for the inside information there. Okay, Rebecca, you are going to talk a bit today about what's been going on in Arizona and some of the issues that come up when trying to work in a a local context with some of the nationals. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. And thank you, everyone so far, Ben and Yulia. This is really fascinating. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Northern Arizona University, or at least a small group of faculty, were trying to do over the past several years. Because Arizona is a right-to-work state, our goal in organizing at Northern Arizona University was never to gain collective bargaining rights or organize contracts, um, but to force the Arizona Board of Regents to be accountable and to hold the president they hired, Rita Chang, accountable to faculty, staff, students, other employees at NAU, and to the larger Flagstaff community where NAU is one of two main employers, the other is the hospital. At best, our group hoped to nudge the university toward adopting practices of meet and confer. So two issues were at play at NAU. One is the difficulty of organizing university faculty in a right-to-work state, and two, the danger of waiting for union HQ or national offices to help out in any material way in a right-to-work state. Uh, I joined NAU English and Cinema Studies in fall of 2013. That year, a new president was appointed who began to undermine faculty governance almost immediately and at the behest of the Arizona Board of Regents put in place by Governor Doug Ducey, began an active policy of reducing tenure density and cutting back the number of multiple year contracts for non-tenured faculty whilst actively working to increase admissions, which was a repeat of what she had done at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. In winter of 2016, faculty who had noticed increasing erosion of faculty governance, including micromanagement of faculty hiring decisions, possible illegal changes to an MOU for a large endowment to the university and other discrepancies, created a local AAUP chapter and sought help from AAUP headquarters, specifically tactics and strategies, someone on the ground to help us organize. In fall of 2016, after the national elections, multiple faculty members received death threats from alt-right individuals and groups, both within and far from Arizona. The administration refused to do anything until the FBI got involved. Uh, Meanwhile, the president of the university was praised on national TV by Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson for being tough on faculty. NAUAAUP continued to ask headquarters in Washington, D.C. for help on the ground, but got nothing. By spring of 2017, um, our local leaders had prepared a multi-pronged grievance regarding discrepancies and misuse of safe working and learning environment policies, centralization of IT, centralized classroom scheduling, multi-year curriculum enrollment, cancellation of allegedly controversial courses, Elimination of 40% of the electronic learning budget, not a good thing given online courses during COVID. Um, The president's appointment of a provost absent a national search and violation of faculty governance documents relative to faculty search processes. AAUP in Washington DC was able to provide case law, but little else. At this point, local and statewide press were aware of the grievance and the issues, and were also aware of what was happening on campus vis-a-vis faculty organizing and so was administration. 
Unfortunately, the grievance was denied at the pre-hearing level, very much on technical grounds, not the merits of the grievance. As the NAU AAUP knew what happened, the University Council employed additional attorneys to fight the grievance and also to fight NAU AAUP's attempt to be recognized as an organized body by the Arizona Board of Regents and NAU administration. In summer of 2017, two leaders of our local group decided that because AAUP National had been so useless at helping us organize on the ground, uh, the West Coast organizer was supposed to at least Skype with us and didn't even do that. We changed affiliation to a real union and chose the American Federation of Teachers, which was new to Arizona, but hoped to organize in Arizona because of the success of K-12 strikes organized by the National Education Association, the Red Frag Movement. In fall of 2017, the regional organizer came to visit us from Kansas City. The new Arizona president of AFT came up from Phoenix to visit, but requests for on-the-ground tactics and training were pushed off because, as we were told, you guys are doing so great already. We asked what it would take to be recognized as a chapter and have access to AFT national resources, especially legal help for faculty who are increasingly under pressure or being targeted. We were told to start paying dues and start recruiting um, and hopefully get to at least 200 members who are dues paying members and we'd be a local chapter. In spring of 2018, we made some headway in pushing administration to its back foot when an accreditation report came out and put NAU on probation for three years for governance violations. We gained a little more momentum when uh, faculty in the business school resigned, leaving the business school without the appropriate ratio of tenured to non-tenure track faculty to be accredited. However, uh, budget shortfalls at the same time meant that departments were being asked to pay back sums of money to central administration because in Arizona, the money is spent before the year's budget is made. It's very confusing. Over summer, as happened over the summer of 2017 and 2016, the administration put policies in place that further undermined faculty governance, including promotion and tenure regulations that upended what had been standing procedure in several schools and colleges on campus. So by fall of 2018, we had a new union and new local leadership. In that year's annual fall forum with the president, uh, faculty across the board made it clear how dissatisfied and frightened they were. The Arizona AFT president came up from Phoenix for the forum, but we still had no boots on the ground and just moral support from headquarters uh, at the American Federation of Teachers. So there was enough collective unease with the president and the administration to make recruiting successful. But then within the union, ego-driven fights erupted over the direction we should take. Should we be more community and common cause oriented and do things like what Yulia was talking about, make more cost of living arguments about Flagstaff, which is basically a resort community? Or should we be focused on specific issues in the university that could be tracked, put in the media, and fought against using the resources available, such as insiders in the faculty union, or the faculty senate rather, and other people who worked on the inside who are willing to share information, for example, budget offices and other offices. Well, the former approach began to hold sway, especially as staff joined the union, and this is when it became very clear that education was going to be vitally important if we actually wanted to build a wall-to-wall -wall union Many employees seem to believe that just by joining a union in a right-to-work state, they might go to jail. Um, and several officers began to leave the union because of this new direction and because of the ego fights that were emerging. We still had no boots on the ground from headquarters. In spring of 2019, in the College of Arts and Letters, multiple irregularities occurred regarding non-tenure track promotions. And faculty, especially faculty of color, began to be targeted in various ways. The president was forced to hold a national search for a provost. The last one had been an appointee for 18 months, which is not what the state statutes called for. 
but the provost was an untried minion of the president's choosing. In fall of 2019, over five grievances had been filed against deans or chairs. Multiple deans from multiple colleges had been fired with little foreknowledge. And the vice provost had threatened a tenured faculty member with censure when that faculty member suggested that the VP could have handled the meeting differently. Basically, the campus was devolving into small town dirty politics. Uh, the former secretary for the faculty senate retired in August of 2019 after staying in that position um, several months beyond her retirement plan because the volume of grievances and questions from faculty were so great. But that position remains vacant, so there is no person on campus who is available to help walk faculty through the grievance process. AFT continued, unfortunately, to be useless even after faculty were intimidated by campus police and further bullying by the administration. Um, I resigned my position at the end of 2019. I was becoming physically ill. Luckily, the Arizona Department of Economic Security agreed um, that I was becoming physically ill because of my employer, and despite the fact that I resigned, cleared me to receive unemployment benefits. So I've kept track of what's going on on campus, and right now the situation in the era of COVID-19 is even worse. Four EEOC complaints have been filed against the university for uh, racial discrimination, as well as further grievances. Some members of the Arizona Board of Regents are calling for the president not to be renewed again. COVID-19 planning at Northern Arizona University is also clearly and publicly the worst of the state's three public universities, but action on the ground is stymied. Um, now, I've been trying to get in touch with the uh, American Federation of Teachers national headquarters and state headquarters multiple times and finally got in touch with the Arizona president who basically finally made it clear what was going on. There is no way for any group affiliated with AFT at Northern Arizona University to make any headway until there are changes in the state government. There needs to be a new governor and new state politicians in order for there to be new members of the Arizona Board of Regents put in place. And until that happens, what we've got is an endless loop. Uh, faculty might organize around specific local issues. A few join, those few make some headway and get a union headquarters attention, but they're either crushed or worn out or never get promised help from the headquarters. New leaders rise up, they make some headway, but by then the university's administration is already primed to crush that and have the legal know-how to do so. The HQ of the other union might be willing to help if we pay dues, but then never send in reinforcements. So the takeaway that um, I learned from talking to the AFT president in Arizona is that in a right-to-work state, or at least in Arizona, especially if a campus is isolated and in a strange congressional district or a strange state assembly district, Faculty are better off staying independent and tightly focused on issues on campus, better off knowing case law very well, better off learning state public employee law very well, and in Arizona at least knowing the political atmosphere very, very well. In Arizona, the AFT realized and headquarters realized that only thoroughgoing political change is going to make it worth their while in that state. Um, this has been discouraging because now we have a situation of multiple faculty having lost their jobs, but there doesn't seem to be any particular pattern to who exactly is losing their jobs. And the administration is refusing to name the names of the people who have lost their positions. And some of you already may know that a number of people were laid off and given exactly two days notice that their health insurance benefits were going to end. Uh, and this is in an age of a global pandemic for which there is no cure and very little medical help that we know of that works. So that's the story.
Thank you, Rebecca. It's really so interesting and important to think about the local context and how much it's going to change according to the specific political climate of a space that we're trying to organize in. So thank you for that, Rebecca. And now um, we'll hear from Chris Robey, who's going to talk a bit about a successful campaign and uh, all the work that went into that at Florida Atlantic University. Thanks. I'll be brief. I'm still shocked with Becky's experience of how badly that was mismanaged and incompetent. So um, like Becky, I'm also in a right to work state, but in some ways we all are, right, with the recent Supreme Court Janus decision that basically ruled no state can compel anybody to join a union as it had been prior to that, that we all have to do kind of grassroots organizing campaigns. Um, so on one level, that's a good thing because it actually forces us to get engaged with membership and the faculty and the communities we want to get engaged with. The negative side, it deprives us with dues and things like that. Anyway, so just briefly, you know, I started at FAU in 2004 as a visiting assistant professor, actually, back in the day, which has really informed my organizing, which I won't go into now, but I'm just saying it's, I just want to mark that. The union was pretty ossified at that time. Uh, we were 22% density membership, meaning 22% of our faculty were roughly about 850 at the time, belonged to it. That, that's pretty miserable. Right to work states in general are pretty low, but that was exceedingly low itself. And I won't go into like what we did exactly to change that other than implementing some really basic strategies, which again, I'm really shocked that Becky's people at AFT didn't do that. And I should say, I'm part of United Faculty of Florida, which is affiliated with AFT. It's affiliated with uh, National Education Association. And it's affiliated with Florida Education Association. And we've had our tensions too with the nationals uh, about that. Really, one major thing we did in that early time to grow membership was just basic 101 organizing, such as door knocking, meaning you go to faculty's door, enter, ask them what their issues are, shut up and listen, and organize around those issues. And we got trained that way through the state, through United Faculty of Florida. We actually had an organizer come in, train a couple of us how to do that, mainly through, I mean, some class, but really going door to door and learning, right? Having a couple of faculty together and learn from each other. And to be honest, once you learn those skill sets, you can teach other people. I've trained hundreds of other people how to do this uh, itself. It's not brain surgery. The difficulty for academics is you have to shut the fuck up. And so the, the learning is you shut up 80% of the time and you speak 20. That's a really hard thing to do, actually. I don't think I've ever achieved that quite honestly, in entering an office, but it's a good thing to aspire towards. So anyway, we did that, and we started organizing around issues, which we won on, an instructor promotional system, paid parental leave, partner benefits before the state realized it. Right now, we have half tuition covered for faculty and staff, and we're still working on stuff itself. It was a really mobilizing campaign, so by around 2012, we hit about 47% of the faculty we gained. We more than doubled at that time. But as people warned us at the time, you hit all kind of low-hanging fruit, right? It's really hard with limited resources to kind of move beyond that. And this is where I think it resonates with some of the other accounts we heard in that we really needed help from the nationals to put money and investment in to, to really grow the membership at that time. Finally, I believe it's FEA, but it might have been through NEA, decided in uh, spring 2018 or maybe in summer, it's pretty late to sink money into the chapters that were growing, right, in the state of Florida. So they hired two organizers, one for North Florida, one for South Florida. That's still tremendously understaffed. The state's huge, uh, but better than nothing, right? 
as well as they sunk money into us locating on campus people, faculty, who would like to organize 10 hours a week and pay them. And we found two of them. And they kind of grew into our new leadership, to be quite honest. We were targeted because we, we had a really healthy, robust campaign anyway. So uh, I was coordinating in the fall of 2018, overseeing about 12 recruiters that we had on the ground. We really didn't have the state come in much. We were a very self-organized chapter. We would have the, the Southern recruiter occasionally come in and touch base and speak with me, but I was the one really overseeing uh, the 12 faculty on the ground who were doing the stuff, 12 to 14 it fluxed, right? Depending on people's schedules uh, itself. And all build to a recruiting blitz in the week, the third week of October, where um, through Monday through Thursday, we had different shifts of people going out from eight o'clock to four or five in the afternoon and hitting faculty. One thing we learned is you cannot approach faculty enough and discuss the union. There's no such thing as oversaturation. If you have different people and you strategically approach people, you can do it. Anyway, long story short, as a result of that campaign, we had 70 new faculty members join in three months, which is unprecedented. We had people joining five to six a week for three months straight, we grew our membership up to 52% as a result of that, which created a good feedback loop. Now NEA wants to invest more in us. So we've continuously had this kind of campaign. And just to put it where we're at now, even, I mean, who knows what COVID's doing? And I hate to hear that story Yulia has. So it sounded like a really good campaign over there prior to COVID. And you guys were doing really good kind of on the ground work. You know, the person, person took my job as lead organizer. I became a communication, the head of communication. This person also now wants to run for union president. We've had about 10 new people uh, infused into leadership itself. Um, we're having transition issues, but whatever that happens in any kind of union itself. But I'd be glad to talk about it. But it was it was a really positive experience of what finally, you know, when NEA dedicated resources, what could happen with a well-organized chapter. My kind of takeaway here is you got to get that grassroots sort of mobilizing going and sadly proving to the national or the state or whatever it might be that it's worthy of resources. I know this is sort of the cart before the horse because you still need nonetheless some minimal resources dedicated to actually start mobilizing. And to be honest, it's not that many, right, to get you actually mobilizing at the, the chapter level. Uh, we're not talking about a ton to even hit 50% or above, right? This is very, not minimal, but a, a core group of five or six people at the university can do it. I mean, we witnessed it. Granted, you need more to build after that. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Really heartening to hear um, at the end of all of this, some ways in which the campaigns come to a, a successful, I don't want to say conclusion because I know it's ongoing and never concluded, but to hear a uh, way in which we can learn from some some successes and try to incorporate them into our own campaigns. And actually, I wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about that. And maybe we can have a conversation here about some of the ways that these campaigns unfolded in, in different contexts and what these difficulties and successes meant in terms of strategy and, and organizing. You know, Chris, you brought up some strategies that worked, you know, in terms of just old school door-to-door -door organizing. Um, and Becky, you brought up some suggestions in terms of um, really getting to know case law and, and local contexts and, and what to do there. So I was wondering if either of you or Ben or Yulia could talk a little bit more about specific strategies you would suggest for, especially for people who are just beginning to organize on their own campuses, might not be as familiar with this type of work you know, some takeaways from what did and didn't work in your experiences. And also one thing that um, several of you mentioned or implied is in terms of 
developing strategies is the my problems with organizing in academia, particularly as far as the sort of transient nature of the labor pool goes. Thinking about contingent labor, you know, three of the four of us are contingent in our positions. And then, of course, with grad students, you know, you're there for a limited period of time. So, you know, what suggestions would you see for long-term strategies with that in mind? I mean, can I just say something that, that Yulia mentioned earlier, and I, I kind of agree with, and I, who knows what the world looks like with COVID. I cannot overstate the importance of getting people together in the room, in one spot, often off campus, in a place that they might feel secure. You should do it on campus as well, but I think off-campus space is really important. Uh, you get people together in a room who already are mobilizing around either wanting to form a union or a union, they are going to get talking about what's ailing them. And just connecting the dots and the narratives together at that moment and having an ask, right, as they call it, like, okay, we complained about it. So, okay, concretely, what are we doing next, right? That's the core step you do after you get everybody in the room. You're clearly here and motivated. So then what tasks do you have? You have, you have. And by having that accountability in the physical presence of one another and, what, and the vibes that just get off, right, of one another, you build off of that. It's a really interesting challenge. I'm curious what Yulia thinks too about under COVID of trying, I mean, there's no way to really replicate that, but nonetheless, how to kind of do alternative means. Yeah, I think part of the political education that I think was really successful in our case is that we started talking about like our material conditions and just erasing shame around talking about like housing insecurity and food insecurity and people being homeless. So many students in Santa Cruz have experienced or are experiencing homelessness and are so ashamed of that. And so the fact that we brought those conversations to the fore and the thing we were organizing around is uh, rent burden. And so the way we calculated COLA is this additional amount that would bring us out of rent burden. And so we would wear pins with the percent we are rent burden around campus. And people would be like, oh, what are you? And there was kind of camaraderie and curiosity built around poverty. But the thing that really worked for us was actually a lot of digital communication. Because as I mentioned, with the union, we didn't have the capacity to email all of the membership. We had to go like through the statewide and they, they had to approve the email. And that's kind of the same with the student government. It has to go through the graduate division. There's so much censorship, it's ridiculous. So actually building a robust digital infrastructure where we can email people, we can text them, we have their numbers, we know how to contact each other was so helpful. So I think having that and going into COVID was really a saving grace and being able to, you know, we do a lot of agitational emails and memes, and we have a really active and successful, I would say, social media accounts. So there is some digital media approximation, but really it's only successful now because we did so much in-person organizing. Yeah, so I, I wanna double down on that. Like if it's still a possibility, getting with people in person is the way to go. Yeah, it seems that, you know, at the heart of these organizing campaigns is clearly just communication. And we see some of the issues that have come up, um, I think probably, especially in Becky's situation, 
is when communication stops or is stopped by egos, as you mentioned at one point in, in one moment, or by underlying concerns by, in your case, the national that aren't your particular concerns. Right. And I think like Chris Rebe was saying about Florida Atlantic, of course, there are always going to be transition issues as one group of leadership moves in to take over when another group of leadership has been voted out or you, know, you need them to move on. But I think strategically, depending on where you are and where your organization is, that can be quite dangerous, especially if the person who led you to where you are and you might be making some headway was in our case at least also connected to the Innocence Project, had um, connections to lawyers across America, knew how to read case law, knew how to make case law clear to faculty. For example, explaining in a faculty meeting that if you wanted to talk to members of what was then the AAUP group, please use a non-NAU email address because according to state case law and according to law in Arizona, if you use the university's own server to have these kinds of conversations or these communications, you could get in trouble later. There were faculty members in the room who were like, what? How is that possible? I'm a tenured faculty member. The things I write are my own. And this gentleman was able to explain, no, not really. Um, here's a list of the case law that proves otherwise. And you can talk to us afterwards. Now, that kind of information of how things work legally was fascinating to a lot of faculty members who might not otherwise have recognized themselves as being in any way at risk. But then with the transition into a more community-minded orientation, we lost that connection to a person who understood the importance of case law. And we lost that connection to a sense that no, understanding public employee law in the state of Arizona might in fact be very important to informing what we might do in terms of day-to-day -day campaigns and recruiting. And that set us backward. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to what Chris and Yulia said about being able to have meetings in person on the ground with people. But when you begin to set a tone and that tone is then erased because of new leadership, you really do end up starting all over again. And there's just no way to make up that lost ground in a place that is actively hostile toward unionizing of any kind. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting also, because when I think about rank and file organizing um, and organizing on the ground, the connection to the community and the community aspect of it seems like it's such an important part of academic organizing, campus organizing, and it is. But as you're pointing out, we can lose sight of some of the really important legal frameworks that are part of union organizing and that isn't necessarily the kind of work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So we aren't necessarily going to be familiar with it. We have to familiarize ourselves with it. Yeah, and we discussed in particular sort of troublesome legal frameworks and the ways in which they really seem to advantage employers, especially in terms of contract faculty. And Elia, I think you discussed this somewhat as well, too. So if, if any of you want to jump in and talk some more about that or maybe how we can create alternative organizing models that aren't necessarily reliant on dominant unionizing models that lead to these types of challenges. I'd like to jump in on that one. Um, I think, and, and I'll just try and tie it back to some of the organizing strategy that Chris and Eula brought up. And I, I generally agree with, but also want to talk about the particularities of at least my experience at Seattle U trying to organize contingent faculty, you know, and, and we can kind of use a little bit of the legal designation, right? Community of interest, which is how they determine bargaining units. 
in a lot of ways, the campus is how that community of interest is, is structured, but the population of non-tenure track faculty in its fragmentary nature didn't necessarily identify with campus as their community. And it was very uneven, right? There were folks who'd been at Seattle University for decades as non-tenure track faculty who had a, had a particular relationship to the institution such that they identified very strongly with campus, but also saw their experience as generalizable. That is, they had been treated more or less kindly, and though they are generally supportive of unionization, were afraid of antagonism. Then there were other folks who were teaching, you know, one to two classes a year on the Seattle U campus and teaching at two or three other institutions, becoming involved, uh, deeply involved in a, in a campaign at one institution was a real tax on their already very overtaxed schedules. So that model of the one-on-one, the -on -one, which is essential to any organizing, but also the formation of the, the collective group and in in getting folks in the room together was really difficult given the population that we had. And all of that to say that I think constituting that body again, to use this awkward framing, but the community of interest um, for ourselves, the rank and file, is a significant challenge because if you don't have that in place prior to entering into the legal fights, what you are essentially doing is relying on uh, labor law to be your base of power, right? And so um, if you happen to have a, a lawyer among you who's strong in case law, maybe that will be a strength. Um, and, and I should say, the SEIU was, was supportive on the legal side of things. That is, um, they devoted um, resources in terms of their legal team to fighting our battle. But ultimately, they're tied to all the bureaucratic structures of both the union itself, but also the legal system, right, which allowed months and months to pass, right? It's just, you're just one case on a docket. And without that ability to have that on the ground presence to keep things rolling, it was really disempowered because it wasn't backed by, frankly, what, what Yulia has described, which is I, I kind of fundamentally think the withholding of labor is labor power, right? Um, the, the reverse side of that concept, right? And the university never had that threat, was really never on the table. And uh, the SEIU and, and Young Run organizing model really assumed that that community would produce itself almost automatically around the idea of the campus as this shared space, as something that we would have us interacting all the time. But that simply wasn't the case. And so uh, I don't think we could develop the sort of leadership structure that Chris described, which is really successful, right? Like leaders that actually come out. You know, I ended up being very public and part of it, but I'm not a very good organizer. I'm very much the academic that Chris describes. I had a hard time um, with the 80-20, right? <laughs> but but because I, I, I'm ideologically aligned and really passionate about it, I'd show up at meetings. And ultimately, that became what was leadership. And that's not a good model of leadership. People don't follow people because they're willing to show up at meetings and shoot off with the mouth, um, which is what I was willing to do. So I think when we think about our campuses and how we build power, and we really kind of have to maybe think about building our own strategies that then um, kind of by the time we're interacting with um, national unions, AFT, SEIU, UAW, we already have a base to work from and don't rely on their resources, but in particular their models, because they ultimately are deeply tied, I would say, to the legal structure, right? That, that is really what gives them their rights. Monopoly bargaining rights, for instance, the due structure, which is obviously changing now with the right to work, work legislation. 
and that really affects how they approach workers. However, I think they're important resources and they need to be collaborated with, but faculty need to first understand themselves as workers and form that collectivity in advance. Otherwise, you're really stuck with a, a given organizing model that doesn't necessarily fit your situation and can in fact be quite alienating. And that was the other side of things, right? Um, heavy alienation of faculty through the organizing model that just felt and, and was a perfect thing for the university to then lead into. Um, who are these weirdos waiting out for you outside of your classroom? They're outsiders. They don't know your job. And so I guess all of that to say is I think without that before going into the legal fight, in a lot of ways I would say doesn't really matter how good your lawyers are or how well you know case law. If you don't have the base in your, your workplace, all of those things are going to be really thin protection and you can win in court and still lose on the ground. Whereas I think you're better off winning on the ground and losing in court, I think. Could I just build off of that? Just historically speak, I'm a historian, you know, media studies historian. I did a lot of work in Detroit and I think they're really good in the 60s and 70s, I interviewed a lot of people who were part of the uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers. I mean, there's always been these tensions between the national, the state, and so on and so forth. So the League of Revolutionary Black Workers was an umbrella group that united around these things called RUNs, the Revolutionary Union Movement. That was not just distinctive in Michigan, but actually across the United States, which were breakoff groups that felt like the UAW was not representing them. So they formed their own independent unions at the various car factories across uh, Detroit. But there were teachers who did this. There were nurses who did this, right? It was common in New York City, so on and so forth. So it was to apply on the ground pressure. But one thing I learned when I was talking to people in Detroit, often it's portrayed like UAW is doing nothing. The rums were doing everything. And it actually was much more nuanced than that. There were chapters where the UAW wasn't doing anything. But there were other chapters that were highly radicalized uh, in the Red River Rouge plant, the largest plant in the United States in the 60s. They were fighting housing discrimination. They were fighting redlining, right? They saw an intersectional way of approaching unionization that extended beyond the factory floor and into the community itself. So when I talked to one who had been part of the league, He's like, yeah, they were a good example, right? The pressure of the rums in many ways encouraged that chapter to keep doing the type of work that it did. So we need to be nuanced too in terms of good unions and good rank and file understand that there's necessary tensions and you can actually build upon them. The real beef in Detroit at that time was with the national at that time, not necessarily the chapters, though some of the chapters went along with the national. I mean, I should maybe mention this too, if the name isn't apparent, these are largely African-American workers that are organizing the runs because they feel they're not being reflected in collective bargaining, they're not being reflected at the local leadership itself. So, I mean, there's nothing new with this, right? And I think there's older historical models that are worth looking at that have been there that are really successful. And I think Detroit alone, quite honestly, from the 30s on the way, up till the 70s is a really great place to start to investigate it's a very vibrant community of radicalism. We have Nation of Islam forming out there. We have Black power in many ways forming there. We have people going to Cuba and civil rights. I mean, Detroit is an amazing place that I think is really worth emphasizing. I encourage other people to check out the Revolutionary Union Movements and maybe the book, uh, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, a great book out there that at least offers a primer of this. Just to throw a plug in for us media folks, I believe on YouTube, you can find Finally Got the News, which is a, a great newsreel documentary about the League of Revolutionary Workers. And really, just really great. I just want to put that plug out there. 
Thank you. That's great. This history is really interesting to think about. And I think this is actually a good way to segue into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, we've been talking about labor organizing and union organizing and university spaces as spaces for labor activism. But I also wanted to hear a little more about the university space as a space for social justice organizing. Yula, you've talked about it a bit more directly with BSU and the Andaki Collective and demands for ICE and cops off campus. And the problem of ICE having invading campuses has, you know, of course, become all the more pressing in just the last few days. So maybe we can tie up by thinking a little bit about how our organizing for labor is directly tied to and in relationship to these other types of social justice campaigns and the types of social justice organizing that really needs to continue happening on campuses and outside of campuses. Yeah, I don't view campus organizing as outside of the city of Santa Cruz and the COLA campaign, the way it sort of developed is actually a lot of the same people organized for rent control in town. So out of failure of local rent control movement, we started organizing with a group of undergraduate students for an on-campus rent freeze. And sort of out of failure of that, we ended up organizing for this COLA campaign for graduate students, which then became a COLA for all campaign that really elucidated that the cost of rent and cost of housing affects all low-waged workers in the community. So the way COPS of Campus demand is now being articulated, it's COPS of Campus, comma, COPS of everywhere. So there's a lot of the same people organizing to defund and dismantle campus police and town police. So this sort of collaborative organizing is really necessary. And when our strike was happening, city police was at the picket line policing us, just as Black students who are experiencing police harassment in town continue to experience it on campus. Like it's not, it's not a separate thing or this magical place where somehow students are not policed or harassed or surveilled because they are. And so, yeah, this fight really spills over into the city of Santa Cruz. And that's been really incredible to see. And just one thing I want to mention is that Food Not Bombs local in Santa Cruz and the Poor People's Campaign and the local chapter of the homeless union were really supportive of the strike. We're at the picket line with us every day, and we're really happy to make those connections, to talk about the material conditions of living in poverty. So as the strikes faded away, the connection and the, the work in solidarity continued. Seeing how different organizing campaigns really come together towards a real liberation movement, like real abolitionist anti-imperialist movement, has been kind of incredible to see. I mean, I'll just say, echoing uh, Yulia here too, we, we were pretty strategic in terms of, I mean, the, the difficulty is you have limited resources. So how much do you dedicate internally in the university and how much you dedicate to the community outside. I don't think anybody who's an organizer disagrees, right, of it being tied to the community. The question's strategically, what kind of resources do you have available? What kind of campaign are you engaged in? I know particularly when we were focusing on partner benefits um, before the state recognized them, 
we were definitely active in the LGBTQ community outside of FAU, right? Because it was sort of a travesty, right? That this wasn't being recognized. This had implications for people across the Palm Beaches where FAU is located. You know, other things we focused more locally at the, at the university system, such as creating a promotional system for instructors. That struck me as something we needed to talk to instructors whose voices had been uh, neglected and ignored for years. So it was, there really wasn't a need in that campaign to go outside of it because in many ways they were so marginalized within the community. Yeah, I know in my own uh, experiences with organizing um, also at the UCs a few years back was during our contract campaign, was really trying to um, put social justice issues at the forefront. And that's part of where, you know, a split between um, different factions in the union occurred. So I, th I think there's from the beginnings of the grassroots campaigns, um, emphasizing that these are interconnected issues um, and the way that both Chris and, and Yulia talked about, I think is maybe a key strategy to this type of organizing. Does anybody wanna close with any final thoughts, any additions to what we've been talking about? Well, I, I just wanted to add a little really quickly to, to note kind of the difference that we have to think about the particularities as well. On a, on a small private campus, um, the relationship to the community is very different, I think, compared to public institutions as well as large public institutions. And I can say that during the, the campaign at Seattle University, the SEIU Local 925 also uh, became embedded in a campaign at the University of Washington, Seattle, which is the flagship um, state university, right? Um, and, you know, there's some tension there in terms of there's a certain obvious desire and need to shift a lot of resources to that larger campus um, that has to be wall-to-wall -wall organized, right? Um, because they can't just organize NTT or non-tenure track faculty. But the other thing is that they were able to make much better connections to um, the community through the University of Washington campus, both because of its size, its footprint in the city, and also how um, I think picking up on what, what um, was going on at Santa Cruz and the UCs, um, the cost of living questions, housing, um, because of course, right, the university plays a huge role in the housing market. And so I think at CLU, uh, there was a real struggle to find that sort of connection, or I shouldn't say find it, to articulate it is probably a better way to think about it, because one of the, the regrets I have is not really thinking about how we could have brought in broader questions about the university's relationship to the community, right? Um, Seattle University, as I said, sits at the, it, it says it, 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 in its brochures, it claims that it's um, located in Capitol Hill, which is the um, now gentrified, uh, despite maybe what's happening, how nationally it's being viewed right now. But uh, Seattle is actually in what was called the Central District, which was the historically Black neighborhood. And the fact is the Seattle University campus has really been a sort of outpost that was key to the gentrification of that neighborhood, a 30-year process of displacing the Black population in Seattle, which has moved south or out of the city. And part of that was so connected to the real estate footprint they had. And, and it was unfortunate where we were able to form good uh, support with students around issues of social justice. For instance, I, I didn't mention this in my timeline, but in um, the spring of 2016, 16, a group of students occupied a dean's office for a month and forced out a dean for making 
um, racist comments and for uh, and and looking at the curriculum that was being taught, right? Basically trying to decolonize the curriculum. And they were super supportive of our cause and we were um, there to support them. We made sure that there were folks there to speak at any of their events in support of them and to offer um, protect, you know, whatever sort of uh, protections we could offer. Um, and that was really strong, but it kind of stopped on the campus. And, and so we built strong bonds with students, but of course students, you know, ideally they graduate um, and move on. Um, and what we couldn't do is, is sort of bridge outside of the campus and really became so tied in. And I think like going forward, um, if you're at a private institution, it's worth really thinking about how to make that connection, which um, may go a little bit easier when you're in these public institutions that at least nominally have to acknowledge <laughs> their presence in these communities um, and see themselves as, as tied to it. Whereas for, for privates is a very different relationship. Yeah, and I'll just pop in um, briefly with a, another consideration based very much on the particularities of the, the geography of Northern Arizona University. It's 30 miles away from Navajo Nation and it is uh, a state that may well go blue. It's been um, edging into purple for a while. And it is a state that has a history of boom-bust economies being the only way that Arizona understands economies, um, mostly through extractive industries, mining in particular. So on top of just the difficulty of organizing faculty, which is always difficult to do, and in a right-to-work state, there is a very long history of settler colonialism, extractivist um, ways of earning money, and deeply ingrained racism. While our campus, Northern Arizona University, also exists on a sacred site within sight of the, the San Francisco Peaks. And so it's a sacred area for the Navajo, the Zuni, the Hopi, and a number of other tribes, including the, the ancestral Pueblo peoples. It is a hot mess there. And also we have students who are undocumented and don't know what's going to happen to them. And I frequently had students tell me they had to go back down to Phoenix or the border because their parents or somebody in the family had been pulled over by ICE. I'm not really sure how much organizing just on the, the campus will be able to address all of those issues. Um, so from afar, I'm hoping that by being involved in other kinds of groups, including SCMS, including the ACLS, including um, academic organizations, can bring some issues to bear on the local situation in Flagstaff that might not otherwise cross people's minds. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for this really, really important and exciting in many ways discussions because there, there is so much going on right now. And we're in an unprecedented time, of course. And so I think there's ways to begin rethinking our organize, organizing processes because we're being forced to. And all of what you've brought up, I think, has, has made me um, you know, think really seriously about that. So thank you for this discussion and for all the work that you and, and your comrades do. And I think I speak for all of us as a whole, uh, as you know, in the roundtable, and wanting to suggest to the listeners here that this discussion might be thought of as an opening provocation or or a space from which to think about how to continue organizing for more just labor practices and for more just and equitable campuses in general, and for more solidarity across these movements. And like Becky just brought up, to think about the way that our organization strategies can move across individual campuses into solidarity with one another and solidarity across ranks, but also in ways of leveraging professional organizations like SCMS and other organizations to see if these spaces can be active agents toward organizational change, you know, beyond and including things like lowering fees, reconsidering locations, 
reconstituting hierarchical structures, you know, how can these organizations be a part of this fight rather than an obstacle in these fights? Um, so I hope that this is the beginning of many conversations um, that we can have towards this. And, and I'd like to encourage anybody to be in touch with any of us if we want to continue to have this conversation online and hopefully maybe someday in person again in the future. So thank you again, everybody. Thanks. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, everybody. All right, there was a ton of stuff they covered there. Nice to hear from so many people who are doing the best they can on all kinds of different campuses and at all kinds of different ranks, too. Yeah, that was a really important part of that conversation, too. And so kudos to the roundtable organizers for putting together such a rich uh, range of participants. And I do have an update. There's basically a little bit of good news to to report here. And this is uh, Yulia Gillich uh, informed me of this. She says, I have an update that all graduate student workers who have been fired for striking for COLA have been reinstated at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, This was just a few days ago, just a few more details. Uh, Reporting from Inside Higher Ed, the reinstatement of 41 graduate students is a result of a set between the university and the Graduate Workers Union, UAW 2865. In July, the two parties reached a deal in which the union agreed to drop an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board in exchange for providing a path to reinstatement for fire teaching assistants and instructors. And a little more detail from Vice, the university agreed to offer the 41 students an additional quarter of funding and an employment guarantee for the upcoming academic year. So Veronica Hamilton, a PhD student in psychology at UC Santa Cruz, who was fired uh, and rehired, told Vice, this is a testament to the power of collective action. We were on the picket line for five weeks. We withheld grades for five months. We had a national boycott going, email campaigns, and received letters from around the world. And now we have our jobs back. So it's nice to end with at least a little bit of of inspiration there, because not, you know, there was a lot in that conversation that wasn't a real upper, (laughs) but that at least shows some, some progress from collective action. Yep. And they were not fighting just for themselves or even just for the other grad students on that campus. That was... That was a really important action that hopefully will leave positive ripples elsewhere. And also one other update, uh, Chris Robey wanted us to share that the SCMS Caucus on Class will be holding a virtual business meeting on September 14th at 2 p.m. Uh, I assume that's Eastern. So anyone who wants to further discuss the issues in this podcast and more about the crisis of academic labor is welcome to attend it. Uh, they don't have a link yet, but you can contact Chris for that link. You can reach him at C-R-O-B-E at F-A-U We will put that contact information and the contact info of everyone in the roundtable on our website, uh, aka-media.org. And so you can get in touch with any of them. They invited you at the end of the segment to get in touch. So check our website, aka-media.org, to to get in touch with any of them to chat more about these crucial events and learn more about their experiences. And and where do they, where do we uh, get that info? Akahafamini.org. Yeah. I like your, your follow-up to it. That, that really makes, yeah, that I'm, makes it you happen. Know, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to contribute something, and that's actually, you know, that's, that's what I got. We'll work on a, a new jingle for the opening of the website so I can finally get the name right. So that'll be my, that'll be my homework for the next yeah. month. And we'll also return with more segments with award winners. We put that on pause just because the one segment here was so long, but we will get back to uh, honoring the SEMS award winners who didn't get a chance to be honored in Denver this year. So that's more to come. All right. Thank you for listening. Aka Media is produced with the help of the University of Notre Dame, Denison University, and the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. 
We'd like to thank our co-conspirators and co-organizers, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University, Joel Neville Anderson at the University of Rochester, Stephanie Brown at Westchester University, and Frank Mondelli at Stanford University. As well as the golden ears and sharp eyes of Todd Thompson down at uh, UT Austin. Thank you so much to the workplace organizing uh, participants. We greatly appreciate you bringing your work to us, and we're really proud to be able to uh, share it with the world. So that's Jamie Rogers, Chris Robey, Yulia Gillich, Rebecca Gordon, and Ben Stork. Yes, indeed. Thank you. All right, everybody. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Stay home. Stay <laughs> home.